0: Good morning again. If you could turn with me in your, in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. Our sermon text for this morning is Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 20. We'll go ahead and read that. Uh, but before we do, please pray with me. Our Father, we, we come to you. We come to you, our our rock of ages. We come to you, uh, the one in whom we might hide. uh, Hide from sin and guilt and condemnation. Find peace, uh, grace, and your love and mercy. And so we come to you for grace. We draw near to the throne of grace that we might find mercy and grace to help in our time of need. Uh, So we come to you, Father. We come to hear from you. We pray that you would speak to us clearly from your word. Uh, we pray, Father, that you would guide my lips, that I would say things that are true and right and good, uh, that you would be with all of us as we hear, uh, that you would sink your grace deeply into our hearts, that it would, uh, that it would have an effect uh, in us, changing us, transforming us, giving us eyes to see and uh, or reorienting our hearts toward you. Be with us now by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Galatians chapter 3, beginning with verse 15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean, the law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. If the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. There is a tension in the Christian life. I don't know if you've noticed it or felt it, but there is a tension often between grace and law between promise and performance. Now, now Christianity is is all about God's grace. God accepts us. He loves us. He receives us, not because of anything we do, but because of the cross. Christianity teaches that that all humanity has has failed. Uh, We we haven't honored God as we should. Our hearts have become disoriented, that is, oriented in the wrong direction. in, In Adam, we've all broken kind of this primeval law of creation, the primordial covenant. God had, in the beginning, set up a relationship with humanity, God was the king, God is the king. Human beings are his subjects. And God had set up the world for us to to rule justly under him. This is why our our, our default mode of living is law. God set up the world for us to, to sort of rule the world under him. But humanity rebelled. Uh, we failed to rule in a way that was just and in submission to our great king. And this is where, again, our universal sense of, of guilt and shame come from, right? Because we really have broken a law. Uh, shame really has fallen on the human race. And, and the question is, what do we do with that? I think often because our, our, the, the way we think is, is about the law, we, we try to work our way out. We try to work our way out of guilt, work our way out of shame. We, we cover over our guilt with good works. We, we hide our shame. Uh, we, we excuse our failures. We try to rebuild uh, some sense of righteousness and wholeness by proving ourselves to the people around us. The, the Christian message, however, is, is, is one of grace. It, you know, we, don't, we don't have to rebuild what we have broken because God has ultimately rebuilt it for us through Christ. And there, there are two propositions uh, in Galatians, two, uh, two statements in Galatians that are central to this, central to the book of Galatians as well. Chapter 2, verse 16, which we've looked at a few weeks ago, uh, which says, We are justified not by works of the law, but through faith in Christ. Uh, what that means is that as Christians, our, our place in God's world, our, our self-worth, our value as human beings, is not found in our performance, but in the work of Jesus received by faith. And there's another proposition in Galatians in chapter 5, verse 16, which says that we are to walk by the Spirit so that we don't gratify the desires of the flesh. And uh, that, that is that the Christian life progresses. It moves forward not by some kind of unaided human effort, but by active dependence upon the Spirit of God. And these two things, right, the work of Christ in making us right with the Father and the work of the Spirit in transforming our hearts, these are really at the heart of Paul's teaching in Galatians. In fact, what Paul is warning against in the book of Galatians is just the opposite of those two. You flip them around. That's what he's warning against. He's saying, uh, don't look to the law. Don't look to your performance for your self-worth. Look to Christ. And, And don't look to the law to complete you. To make you whole as a human being, look to the work of the Spirit. And so Christianity, right, is is about grace, not law. It's about promise, not performance. And yet, if you've ever been to a church, which you're in one right now, uh, you know that it's not that simple. Um, You know, often we step into the room at church and we feel a certain pressure to conform or to perform we hear a message of grace, but we feel a message of, of keep up and get your act together. And so we, we kind of put on a show, we put on a mask when we come to church that makes us look good. And I think I think part of that, part of that is is because there is this real tension, or at least a reasonably perceived tension, uh, even in the New Testament, right, between grace and the weight of grace. And then you find all of these commands that keep popping up in the Bible. And God wants to reshape us. He wants to reshape us into a people that enjoys Him and loves one another. But that reshaping is not always comfortable. Right? I mean, grace is not always comfortable, and then we turn to the Old Testament and we see this tension. It's not merely perceived. I think it's, it's real. There's the grace and law. There's promise and performance. And, and we wonder, how do these two things relate? How do they relate in the Old Testament? How do they relate in the Christian life? And that's what we're going to talk a little bit about this morning. And so you can see your outline on the back of your bulletin. Uh, I think there are just three words there. But we're going to look at uh, the tension, uh, the tension in the Old Testament between the law and the promise. We're gonna look at the the dance, the dance in the Old Testament between the law and the promise, and then we're gonna see that Christ comes to fulfill both law and promise, right? Both law and promise. We'll talk about some implications of that for us. Uh, We're we're about to, I think, uh, wade into, if we haven't already in Galatians, we're about to wade into Paul's theology of the law over the next couple of weeks. And uh, for some of you, it's maybe just going to bring more questions. Uh, for some of you, it's going to get ridiculously deep and you're going to wonder what we're talking about. So um, let me say ahead of time that the point of all of this, uh, the point of Paul's discussion of the law and why is the law there and what's it for and what's the point, that the point is that, that your, your self-worth does not come from your performance, but it comes from Jesus. Right? The point is that your value before God, your acceptance, your righteousness before him does not come from your performance. It doesn't come from the law, but it comes from, from Christ and his work in the cross. That you can be accepted and, and actually still be who you are. Right? Uh, God accepts us, uh, one song says, I think we read it last week, God accepts us just as I am. Does God call us to higher things, right? Does he want us to grow? Does he want to free us from the sins and struggles that entangle us? Of course he does. But he accepts us as we are in Christ in the moment because we can't be anything other than what we are in this very moment. And then he begins to transform us by his grace. And that's true each day, right? As as God's mercies are new every morning, right? Every morning, God accepts us in Christ where we are in that moment and then He begins to transform us by His grace. And uh, again, it's just the two propositions in Galatians. Our acceptance is in Christ, not in our works, and, uh, and then we learn to walk in the Spirit. Uh, we're going to be focusing more on the first of those over the next couple of weeks. We'll touch on the second, and we'll get to that more fully later on in Galatians, once we get to Galatians chapters 4 and 5. First, let's look at this tension, right? This tension um, that Paul is talking about in Galatians 3, but it's a tension in the Old Testament between the law and the promise. You know, when we look at the, at the law of Moses in Scripture, if, you, if you've ever read through uh, the book of Exodus and all the laws in Exodus, or the book of Leviticus, and all the laws in Leviticus, uh, or, or Deuteronomy, and all of the, I mean, Deuteronomy is, is law from beginning to end, right? And if you've read those books, it seems like The law given to Moses implies that our acceptance is based on our performance. I mean, God commanded Israel, do this and you will live, right? It's pretty straightforward, do this and you will live. Uh, So so the question is, does the law imply that? Does it imply that our acceptance is based on our doing, our performance? Um, Well, when we look at what Paul says in Galatians 3, it actually seems to encourage that idea. Because Paul says in Galatians 3 that the law and the promise are actually different ways of relating. Completely different ways of relating. So Paul says this in verse 18. Verse 18, he says, uh, For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. It's either or. It's one or the other. Uh, now, Now let me say up front as we start looking at these verses, When when Paul is talking about the law and the promise here, he's not merely talking about sort of general categories of law and promise. He's talking about historical realities. Right? Does that make sense? He's talking, when, when Paul talks about the promise here, he's talking about God's promise to Abraham, specifically. When he talks about the law, he's talking about God's law given to Moses, specifically. Uh, And and what Paul says in verse 18 is that the law and promise, the law and the promise, are mutually exclusive ways of relating. The law is about works. Do this and live. And in this sense, the Mosaic law, the Mosaic covenant relationship, right, is two-sided. If Israel would obey, God would bless them with long life in the land. He says as much. But a promise is different. Uh, a promise isn't two-sided. It's, it's one-sided, right? I promise to give to you. The obligation, at least, is, is on one side. I'm promising you something. Uh, this is actually what the second half of verse 19 into verse 20 is about. Uh, let, let me go ahead and read that again. So second half of verse 19 into verse 20. Paul is talking about the law. It was added until the offspring should come. And he says, And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary, now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Uh, these are actually very confusing verses. I don't know if you've ever thought about what these verses are about. Uh, most, uh, In fact, one commentator uh, I read said that there are 430 different interpretations of verse 20. Now, he probably got that number from a verse, a few uh, verses earlier, but the point is there are a lot of different interpretations of this verse. Uh, but, after doing some reading, I, I, I'm actually I, I, I found at least one interpretation I'm comfortable with. I actually got it from a librarian at Dallas Theological Seminary. So you can decide whether uh, whether you think it's right or not. But uh, the end of verse nineteen says that the law is put in place through angels by an intermediary, which already is confusing to us. But Paul's actually just conveying a pretty common belief in his day uh, that's overlooked today, that the angels had a role in the giving of the law to Moses. He's the mediator, the intermediary. Just as an angel appeared, uh, and the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in the burning bush, so it was the angels who appeared to Moses later on Mount Sinai to give him the law. And uh, most people think that Paul, what he's doing here is he's kind of downplaying the law's significance. That that is, you know, the law only came through angels, not directly through God. And and you'll read that in commentator after commentator after commentator. They'll say, well, Paul's downplaying the law's significance. It only came through angels, not through God. But that would be kind of an odd argument. Because when was the last time the appearance of angels meant something was not significant, right? Uh, no, the appearance of angels means something is, is highly significant, right? Every time angels appear in the Bible, you're not like, okay, just turn past this part, right? No, like something is happening that's important. What is the significant then of the angels? Uh, believe it or not, the angels uh, uphold God's side of the covenant, both in blessing and in judgment. Okay, really? That's what angels do? Actually, uh, here, yes... Uh, really uh, a number of places in scripture talk about this so just after giving the law in the in the book of Exodus Exodus chapter 23 there's this interesting part God says behold i send an angel before you to guard you on the way to bring you to the place that i have prepared right so what's the angel doing there the angel is is playing the role of fulfilling god's promises in the covenant he's bringing them into the promised land he's guarding them along the way right the angel's god's representative in fulfilling his promises and then Exodus 23 goes on it says God says, pay careful attention to him, the angel, and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. So what's the angel doing there? The angel is going to punish them if they disobey God's covenant. Hebrews 2 actually picks up on this. It calls the Mosaic Covenant, the message declared by angels, and says of that covenant that it proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. And, and so you see elsewhere in Scripture, the mention of angels is actually connected to God holding his people accountable. The message of angels is saying this is a serious covenant. When Paul says in verse 19 that the law is put in place through angels, that implies, at least in part, Israel's obligation their accountability for fulfilling the law. The point is not the relative importance of the law, like it's not that important. No, the the point is this is serious stuff. Now, not only that, it was put in place through angels, but by an intermediary, right? That's Moses, right? He was the mediator, the intermediary. Why is that important? Okay, why does he bring that up? Who cares who the intermediary was? Well, verse 20, verse 20 says, now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one, which makes everything perfectly clear. An intermediary implies more than one. Okay, so what, Paul, why? What what are you saying, what are you getting at? Uh, An intermediary always stands between two people, at least two people, right? Uh, If you need an intermediary for yourself, uh, there's a serious problem, right? Uh, A mediator implies two parties that need mediation. Okay, so what, that's kind of obvious. Again, why does Paul point that out? Well, two things, first, Paul's point is that the Mosaic law has binding obligations on two parties, Israel and God. Two parties, binding obligations on Israel, hence the angels who are gonna hold them accountable. And so if you, if you read through the curses uh, for the breaking of the law in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy, um, you'll know that this is serious accountability. And God basically threatens his people, you read through those chapters, God basically threatens it to destroy his people if they break his covenant, right, ultimately. Okay, so this is serious. God's people are accountable. They have an obligation to fulfill this law covenant. But second, Paul goes on to say, but God is one, which is another fairly obvious statement, or at least it was to Paul's readers. It seems like kind of a non sequitur, right, kind of irrelevant to the point, uh, but it's actually not. Paul's point is God gave the law through angels by a mediator. The Mosaic law has these two parties, God and Israel, both have obligations, but God is one. And Paul's point is not an ontological one. He's not talking about the being of God. Uh, Paul's point is, while the law has two parties, both with obligations, the promise has one obligated party. God's the only party. Which brings us to verse 18. In verse 18, uh, we're told that God gave the inheritance to Abraham by a promise, a a one-sided promise. God promises to give something to Abraham. And that brings us to Genesis 15, which which Brian read earlier to us. I have to say, when Brian reads Scripture, right, it sounds more like God's word than when anybody else reads Scripture, right? <laughs> because of the British accent. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, Genesis 15, right? In Genesis 15, God has this covenant renewal ceremony with Abraham. And to make a covenant in that day involved taking an oath. Right? You were taking an oath, you're making a promise. Uh, an oath. We'll we'll distinguish it from promise for the moment. Both parties would take an oath, and they do that by cutting the animals in half. It's a little bit messy. They cut the animals in half, and then they walked between the two halves. And it was a way of both parties saying, if I fail to keep up my end of the bargain, may what happened to these animals happen to me. It's A little bit like the old children's rhyme, you know, Uh, you you make a promise and and you say, cross your heart, hope to die, stick a needle in your eye. Does everybody everybody know that? Is that just me, right? (laughs) Anyway, when I was a kid, I used to say that. I have no idea why I used to say that. But I used to say that, right? It was a way of saying, uh, I'm taking an oath, and if I break my oath, I accept the consequences. Not that I thought it through that much as a five-year-old, but that's what you're saying. The amazing part of Genesis 15 is that Abraham doesn't walk through the animals. Only God walks through the animals. What does that mean? Well, this is a one sided promise covenant, right? It's a one sided promise. Uh, it's not a two sided agreement. God's promise to Abraham was not conditional, Abraham didn't have any obligations. Right? This was God's promise to Abraham. And you see what Paul is doing then here in in Galatians. He's saying, look, if the inheritance comes by law, it no longer comes by promise, right? The law was given through the angels by an intermediary, which Paul says implies a two-sided contract of sorts. That means both parties have obligations. But God is one, one party, and he gave the inheritance to Abraham by a promise, not a contract, not a law. It wasn't a deal. God just said, I promise to give this to you. Law and promise are different ways of relating. Law is like a contract. contract, it's conditional. If certain requirements are fulfilled, then wages will be paid, right? On some level, that was true of Israel. On some level, right, if they obeyed God, then they would live long in the promised land. But a promise is not like a contract, or if you want to call it a contract, that's fine. It's a one-sided contract where God has all the obligations. And so God gives his promise to Abraham, but it gives a law to Moses, hence the tension, right? Hence the tension. The question is, how does the law relate to the promise? How do those two things work together? Which brings us to the next point, uh, which I'm calling the the dance in the Old Testament between law and promise. You know, a dance might have tension in it, uh, but it's not necessarily bad tension. Uh, If you dance in a dance, oftentimes you have two people doing different things, right? Um, you're not doing exactly the same thing when you dance with another person. Two people doing different things. It could bring tension. It doesn't have to. Uh, they can actually be working together. And so here we're going to see how, how kind of the, the law and the promise are working together, working in tandem, doing different things, but working toward the same ends. And so first Paul says uh, essentially that God's promise is not made void by the law. God's promise is not made void by the law. So, Paul begins in verse 15, he says, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. It's actually a a little bit hard to know exactly what Paul means, it's kind of obvious on the surface, but covenants, like modern day contracts, actually could be changed. (laughs) Uh, The word Paul uses could also be translated will, or testament. Um, I, I guess wills can be changed too, but not after the person dies, right? At that point, it's pretty much set. As far as I know, I'm not a lawyer, but uh, maybe that's what Paul is referring to. He's, he's thinking of a will, right? Once that will is enforced, it, it, it's not changed. Uh, whatever the case, the point is, Paul's point is obvious. Once God made his promise to Abraham, especially once Abraham was dead, right? God's not going to change that promise, God's not going to take back his word to Abraham. And so verse 17 says, uh, This is what this is is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not uh, not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. God gave the inheritance to Abraham by a promise. He promised Abraham the inheritance. Uh, for a moment, we'll just kind of gloss inheritance as salvation. We'll talk about that more later. But he gives this promised inheritance to Abraham. Nothing that happens after that, certainly not 430 years after that, can change God's promise. Now, if you have a question about that number, 430 years, uh, come up and talk to me afterwards. It's actually really interesting. There's too much to talk about at the moment. So, uh, here's the point. No one's going to ask about that. It's only interesting to me, but it is interesting to me. But here's the point. Whatever the law does, that came 430 years later, it doesn't undo the promise. And this is important, right? Because God God promised to bless the Gentiles through Abraham. That's regardless of how well we Gentiles perform. That's important, right? That means even when we fail, right, God's still going to keep his promises, that's important to know, isn't it? Even when we fail, God's still going to keep his promises. At whatever law you might think you have to keep, your failure does not negate God's promise. Your failure to, to read your Bible every day or pray or be kind to those around you. Your failure to, to get straight A's or to get the raise you've been working for. Whatever it is you think that you failed to do, right? that does not negate God's promise. God's not going to turn his back on you because you haven't lived up to your or even his standards. So the law, whatever it does, whatever it does do, right, it doesn't negate God's promise. So what does it do? Well, Paul says the law relates to transgression. That's the word he uses. While the promise relates to the inheritance, the law relates to transgression. Verse 19 why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. Okay, great, what does that mean? Right? Because of transgressions. Uh, it, it actually could mean a number of different things. It could mean the law was added to provoke transgressions. That's actually possible, Paul says that elsewhere. Could mean the law was added to make sin transgression. A transgression is a, a, is a specific breaking of a law Um, If there's no law, there's no transgression. Paul says that elsewhere as well. So it could mean it was added to sort of make sin into transgression, into the breaking of law. It could mean the law is added to make known transgressions, right? Uh, Or it could mean the law was added to restrain transgressions. It could mean a lot of different things. All of those ideas are found elsewhere in Paul, which makes it difficult to understand what he means here. Uh, And we'll actually talk about this more next week. You'll be happy to know. Uh, But at the very least the law makes known our sin. Right? That, that's what law does. It makes known our sin. Paul says in Romans 3.20, law brings knowledge of sin. You know, one, of, one of the key purposes of the law was to give Israel a knowledge of her sin. When God says, you know, don't do this, and we realize, hey, I keep doing that. What does that tell me? It tells me I'm a lawbreaker. It tells me I'm a sinner. Why is that important? Ironically, the law would then actually restrain legalism. The law would restrain legalism. If it's telling me how sinful I am, think about it. It would actually promote hope in the promise. If law was put in place to show me how sinful I am, then law proves that I can never earn God's love. That's what the law does. It proves that you can't earn God's love. Every failure you have to live up to the law weans me off of pride and self-righteousness. And so if I'm honest with myself, the law actually brings despair of ever fulfilling God's requirements and obtaining a blessing in that way. And so the law forces me to look elsewhere for God's blessing. Clearly can't look to the law because I keep breaking it, so I've got to look somewhere else. So the law, it gives us a realistic assessment of ourselves. It causes us to hope not in the law, not in ourselves, not in our performance, but in the promise That's one of the things that the Mosaic law did, right? It caused Israel to hope for something else. One of the things that that shows the the law points to something outside of itself is the fact that the law was temporary, right? The law was temporary. Look at verse 19 again. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. The Mosaic Law was not meant to last forever, according to Paul. It had a use-by date, right? Friday we were in a restaurant and Andrew looked at some hot sauce and he said, this says best by February 2015. (laughs) I used to have a roommate, no joke. He he would look at his watch and as soon as the clock struck midnight on the sell-by date on his milk, he would dump it down the sink. They're like, it's just a sell-by date. You, you can still drink it, but he... midnight, dump it, right? Certain things are only good for, for a given period of time. Learner's permits and curfews, right? Think about learner's permits and curfews. They're important, right? They're important when you're 16, but you don't want to have a curfew forever, right? It's not, it's not nice to have a curfew forever. We mentioned before that certain rules for courting, right? especially in days gone by, uh, were not meant to last Their very goal was to make themselves obsolete. No one continues to abide by the rules for courting after they are married. I hope not, anyway. Or you're misunderstanding marriage, right? Uh, The Mosaic law had an expiration date. What was that? Verse 19, the law was given until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. Once again, notice the connection between the law and the promise here. The law was given after the promise, 430 years after, and the law was in force until the promise was fulfilled. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And that offspring, Paul tells us in verse 16, is Jesus. So verse 16 uh, says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Jesus is the offspring of Abraham. Now, Paul's point is, is actually not that Jesus is, is the exclusive offspring of Abraham. Uh, if I can put it like this, he's actually uh, saying that I- inclusively Christ is the offspring. Okay, what does that mean? It sounds like jibber-jabber. Uh, it means this. Think about Genesis 21. Genesis 21, verse 12. God is talking to Abraham. Uh, Abraham... Uh, in Genesis 21, I think, has just had Isaac, his son. Abraham has another child. You remember Ishmael, Has two children. But God says to Abraham, through Isaac, your offspring will be named. What does that mean? Through Isaac, your offspring will be named. He means Abraham had two sons, Ishmael, Isaac, but only his children through Isaac would be counted as his own. Only his children through Isaac uh, would would the promise be fulfilled. So Paul's Paul's point here, so it's through Isaac and then all of Isaac's children. His point here is that Christ is the true child of Abraham, but he'll say in verse 29, a few verses later, if you are Christ's, then you too are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise. So so Christ is the offspring, and then three verses later, four verses later, whatever, he's going to say, you're the offspring as well, because you belong to Christ, So when verse 19 says, the law is given until the offspring should come to whom the promise has been made, who is that offspring? Well, it's Christ. When Christ should come, and of course, in a a sense, it's us as well who are in Christ by faith. And don't miss the the, the key point here um, because it actually will shape the way you read Scripture. Jesus is the true child of Abraham. We who are in Christ by faith are true children of Abraham. Abraham. Which means that we, too, are heirs according to God's promise. Like the, the promises to Abraham belong to us. Right? Uh, this, this is the crux, isn't it? I mean, who receives the promises given to Abraham? That's what they're arguing about in the days of Galatia. And uh, it's actually a still, still a debate, even within Christianity, Christianity today, in some places. Right? Some people say, well, who... Who receives the promises given to Abraham? Well, it's ethnically Jewish people. They're the physical children of Abraham. But Paul says, I think what Paul is getting at here is, well, actually, there's one particular ethnically Jewish person who is the child of Abraham, who is the heir of the promise, right? Just one in particular. Who receives the promises given to Abraham? Christ does, right? He is the promised child, Christ and all who are in Christ by faith. Which means, it's not those who keep the law, it's not those who perform, it's not those who live up, it's not those who are conformed to some vague Christian culture, right? But those who receive the promises by faith in Christ. Those are the ones who are the the heirs along with Abraham. Those are the ones who receive the inheritance. See, the law was temporary because it was pointing to something outside of itself, or someone outside of itself. It was pointing to Christ, the one to whom the promises had been made. Which brings us to our, our, our final point, how Christ comes to fulfill both law and promise. You know, in the, in the Abrahamic covenant, uh, God obligated himself to keep both halves of the covenant. Right? When Abraham and God cut the covenant, that was the phrase, you cut a covenant, uh, like we would cut a deal, but they actually did some literal cutting. Um, God alone walked through the animals. God alone took the curse upon himself. Then God, a little bit later, 430 years, God gives a law to Israel, and he gives them certain commands. He says, do this and you will live. But Israel fails to obey. Who is held accountable? Well, Israel is certainly disciplined for her sin, uh, and yet every time God shows mercy, every time he restrains himself from utterly destroying his people, why does he do that? Because he he has obligated himself to keep both halves of the covenant. God promised the inheritance to Abraham unconditionally. So what does God do? Well, he becomes a child of Abraham. He becomes an Israelite in Jesus. And representing all children of Abraham and representing all true children of Israel, he, he perfectly keeps the law. But then he bears the full brunt of the covenant curses for disobedience as well. So, you know, God in the Mosaic Law threatens oppression, right? Well, Jesus is oppressed and falsely accused in his life. Uh, God in the Mosaic Law threatens to give Israel's enemies an upper hand. Well, Jesus' enemies have him put to death. That's definitely the upper hand. Um, God threatens the foreigner will rise above the Israelite. Well, Jesus is put to death by Romans in his own nation, among his own people. God threatens robbery. Jesus' few earthly possessions are stripped from him on the cross. God threatens nakedness. Jesus dies naked. God threatens drought and thirst, and Jesus on the cross says, I thirst. Uh, God threatens confusion. Jesus on the cross says, why? Uh, God threatens to abandon his people. Jesus on the cross says, you have forsaken me. God threatens to make his people a horror and a byword. Jesus on the cross uh, becomes like one uh, about whom people wag their heads, the Psalms tell us, and avert their eyes, Isaiah says. See, Jesus takes upon himself the full weight of God's covenant curse. And in so doing, he fulfills the law of Moses. He fulfills the Mosaic covenant. He takes the curses of that covenant. But, of course, that's not the end of the story. That can't be the end of the story uh, because there's still the promise. What about the promise? God gave the inheritance to Abraham by a promise. If Jesus is the child of Abraham, the one to whom the promise has been made, then Jesus must receive that inheritance the law is force until right, the promise is fulfilled. So God promises to Abraham, uh, you remember, his promises to Abraham included a seed, a child, well, that's Jesus, okay, we get that, but also a land, an authority, and that God would be his God and, and, and he and his descendants would be God's people. So after being crushed by the full weight of the curses of the covenant, lying dead in the grave for three days, Jesus rose from the dead, Receiving life in place of death. And God raised him up into heaven and seated him at the Father's right hand. Where Jesus was given, what? He was given authority over heaven and earth. Jesus was given a land. And not just a little piece of land, right, in the Middle East. He was given all of it, right? He was given authority over that land. Not just authority over a little piece of land. But he was given all authority in heaven and on earth. And now, all who come to the Father through Jesus have God as their God. That's the promise. God is our God in Christ. And this is why I said earlier, you know, the inheritance of Abraham, we can think about it simply as salvation, because it it is to have God as our God, as we live under the authority of of the Jewish king, Jesus, and ultimately, uh, as we dwell in the promised land, which is the new heaven and the new earth uh, that we hope for and long for. So Jesus is the seed of Abraham who received the promises in his resurrection and now he offers them to those who put their trust in him by faith. Okay, what does that mean for us? Well, we we began talking about failure. Human failure, human guilt, human shame, and how we try to hide that and excuse that and make up for that. And we want to work our way out of that in order to prove ourselves to God, to to regain his favor somehow. Even as Christians, right, because our default mode of living is law, we're constantly trying to rebuild a sense of righteousness, rebuild a sense of wholeness by proving ourselves ourselves. And we use whatever method right, is at hand, whatever we can do uh, as an individual in our flesh, right? whatever talents we have, whatever boast we can make, uh, we hold that up to God and we say, well, what about this? Right? Will this cover my sin? Right? Will, will this remove my guilt? Will, 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 will this buy my way into your heart again? And even if we don't say that, I don't think many of us actually say that, right? that that's often where our hearts are. We're hoping we'll get in with God because of something that we've done And God says to us, simply, look, I've I've already already laid the whole curse on my son. I've already given him the inheritance. If you want it, cast aside such silly boasts and put your trust in him. Rather than laying guilt on yourselves, rather than laying guilt on other people, we can rest, rest in the finished work of Jesus. And we can rejoice in the hope of the inheritance, which is ours by faith in him. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would teach us what this means, that you would bring this home to our hearts, that we would know the joy of being loved by you in Christ, that we would know the joy of sins forgiven, uh, the blessing of not having our sin counted against us, that we would rejoice in that and that we would be changed by that, love those around us in the same way that you have loved us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.